A deeper look, exploring what works and what doesn't in development and the changes we can make together to turn ideas into action. Hi, I'm Patrick Fine, CEO of FHI360, and you're listening to a Deeper Look podcast. Welcome to all of our new and returning listeners. If you're a new listener, I invite you to subscribe. This year, we're focusing on humanitarian crisis and emergency response. And I've been talking to a wide variety of people who are policymakers, activists, or people affected by crisis. Today, I have the pleasure of having Sari Samaki, who is a student at Georgetown University, who is from Syria. Sari brings a youth perspective to this topic of humanitarian response and is also a social entrepreneur. Well, first of all, thank you, Patrick, for having me today. I'm very much looking forward to our conversation and I'm very much looking forward to engage with our audience. Sorry, what I'd like to hear from you is both a little bit about your experience in Syria, which is a country that has been engulfed in crisis since 2011, how it affected you personally, and then a bit about your journey to where you are today as a student at Georgetown and to get your perspective on some of the different aspects of the crisis, both social, political, and economic. Why don't we start by you telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so you wanna go back to 2011. When I saw the first protests in Daraa, Syria, I was I was still 14. I remember seeing it on TV and it was on Al Jazeera because uh, the Syrian national news, they were like, there's nothing happening. These are a bunch of, you know, terrorists coming in and doing fake demonstrations. And so seeing it on Al Jazeera, seeing these people protesting, and they weren't asking to change the regime at the beginning. You know, this is something that's often forgotten. But really, the first six months of the revolution were asking for change. Right. It's part of the whole Arab Spring movement. Yes. Asking mm-hmm. for participating and showing their opinion, showing the policies they want to see happening. Right. And they want to see the public, you know, participating in the political life. Mm-hmm. And to have some voice. And to have some voice, of course. When you have something like the Arab Spring and you start looking at your neighboring countries and here... For me, especially Egypt, I saw this beautiful demonstrations of over 2 million people taking the streets and really setting forward this motion. You start asking yourself questions about the freedoms you have, about the social justice you're engaging in, about the equality you're facing in the country. These are the type of questions that lead to people going down the streets and voicing their opinions. So as a 14-year-old who was watching these demonstrations on TV, seeing what was happening in other parts of the Arab world like Egypt, were you having conversations with your friends, with other 14 and 15 and 16 year olds? Absolutely. I mean, I remember in every classroom in Syrian schools, there's a picture of Bashar al-Assad and Hafiz al-Assad. They're next mm-hmm. to each other. We'd make jokes about the regime. Halfway into, into our laughs, we'd put our hands on our mouth and we're like, Shh, and let's, uh, let's stop talking because you know, black cars are going to come and take us out of nowhere. Right. We had this metaphor in Syria that said, um, you know, the walls have ears, so be careful of what you say. And so, you know, as a 14-year-old, we started having this conversation of what's happening. As a 14-year-old, a 15-year-old, you don't know much about the world yet. But you definitely know that shooting people who are protesting and raising their voice is wrong. 
That is definite. And for me, seeing that these people going into peaceful protests are being shot down, I was like, there's something going on here, something wrong. And I want to put this into perspective, you know, as the youth, as the young, we really had hopes for the regime. Mm-hmm. You know, we looked at the president, Bashar al-Assad, and at the time, he was educated in England, he was young, he was a doctor. We looked up to him in a way, and we thought that he's going to bring the change that his father didn't bring. What we saw is that he's no different than his father, with the brutality that he brought. What city were you in? So I was in Aleppo, I 2012, see. and I finished freshman year in high school. And I couldn't go to school anymore. Uh, My school turned into a military base. And what were the students supposed to do? Go to other schools, Mm -hmm. or some of them stop their school as well, same as me. Or you go to homeschooling. You know, there are a lot of centers that provided lessons as well. I see. Yeah. I decided to drop out of school. And so you really, like, you had to turn to social media. Social media was really the outlet that we and used. Which, which social media did you, had you use? Facebook and you had Twitter. What about WhatsApp? You know, WhatsApp, WhatsApp was there at the time. It's, it's famous in the Middle East for communication. Mm-hmm. Um, we mainly did not use it because we we're always afraid of government, what's it called, uh, spying. Uh-huh. Skype was actually what we used to have, you know, these political discussions because... Skype was always harder to uh, kind of... Monitor? Put, yeah, monitor. Mm-hmm. Obviously use proxies as well and so sure. on. Sure, okay. So uh, you turn to Facebook and Twitter, and that's where you really start exposing yourself to other people's ideas and to really expressing your ideas. But, you know, the government is aware of you doing that. And when you become a threat, they come and take you. Now, for me, I picked up my camera as my way of expressing myself. Like, I was seeing streets that I, I grew up in, I walked in, that are being destroyed. Right. I'm seeing friends that are being captured and killed. Even the school that I went to, to see it go from this place where I had memories with my friends into now a place of torture and capture is very hard to deal with. And so I took the camera and I started taking pictures as my way of expressing myself. And that got me into trouble. I learned that you're not allowed actually to do that because they thought whoever's taking pictures on the streets, regardless of where you are, I could be, you know, taking a selfie on the street and be accused of working with foreign news agencies. Uh So, Patrick, when I was in Syria, I was captured three times by three different groups, by the Syrian intelligence, by the Free Syrian Army, and uh, when leaving Aleppo, I was captured by uh, Jabhat al-Nusra. And that was only for a couple of hours. And my fault was, you know, I was in the old city of Aleppo, which is now completely destroyed. After Friday prayer, I got out of the mosque and my cousin and I started taking pictures, mainly of, you know, the street, the minaret, Mm -hmm. the walls and so. And was captured and accused of supporting terrorism and working with foreign news agencies. And they said that I'm going to take these pictures and, you know, Photoshop them and put uh, demonstrators in them. Yes. Yeah. Can you imagine how, you know, for the regime, how uh, fearful they are of the camera and of a 15-year-old? Yeah. This is how desperate they are, you know. That, that says a lot. So did they detain you or did they just take your camera away? Oh, no, they detained me, yeah. It was a Friday. It was taken to the military intelligence mm-hmm. in uh, Aleppo. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to give our listeners here a background about the military intelligence in Syria, really people who go in are dead. 
and the people who go out are reborn. That's how we think of it. Mm-hmm. And so going in there and knowing of the people that have gone in there and died and are still dying every day uh, since the beginning of the conflict, I kind of just knew that this could be the end of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They take us to the military intelligence, and um, the moment we arrive, we're thrown on the floor, and the beating starts. And then we're asked to stand in a room facing the wall, giving our belongings down to our shoelaces. And that's really here where I held my hand, my cousin's hand, mm-hmm. and I was, I was like, it was nice meeting you. We're probably going to die at any moment. What did your dad do when he found out that the military police had picked you up? So they didn't know where I was. They, yeah, you disappeared. I, I disappeared. I went to Friday prayer, didn't come back. Right. And they called every intelligence center and police station in Aleppo, and they all said, we don't know where they are. They called the one that I was in, and they said, we don't know where he is. Mm-hmm. Yes. The only reason I went from that torture room to the investigation room was because they discovered that I hold a Canadian passport. Oh, it's very important point because I, I, I feel like it shows you how you're stripped of your humanity as a Syrian and you're elevated to, you know, you're considered a human because you could be holding a foreign passport. As a Syrian who grew up in Syria, I like to joke about this, but I'm only Canadian on paper. My allegiance is towards Syria. My memories are towards Syria. That's my hometown. And so to stand there and be looked at by another Syrian who looks at me and be like, oh, oh, we apologize. We apologize for hitting you. And they did the same to my cousin because he holds a British passport. And they're like, we apologize for hitting you. And they took us to the investigation room. Is this how I'm treated? Even though I'm, I'm one of your, you know. One of you. One of you. Yeah. Is this how I'm treated? So right. why do you choose to participate? Why do you choose to participate in the killing of your That's own people? That's my question to you. Yeah. At the time, I hated it. And... I didn't know the answer. However, my reflection on it is that at the end of the day, I am dealing with people who are at the beginning good, and then something else caused them to change. And that's the regime to blame. Mm -hmm. For me, it's always important to remember the human in others, Mm -hmm. because if I strip them out of their humanity, I'm going to generate this force of hatred, this force of violence. Right. You know, that's how two people clash. That's why it was important for me to remember the human in them, and try to access it, try to speak to the human in them. Uh-huh. And you were picked up for taking photographs on the street. Yeah. You were released when they realized that you had dual citizenship as a Canadian citizen as well as a Syrian. Yeah, they told me if you didn't have the Canadian passport, you, you wouldn't be out. And so going out of that place, you really feel um, that, first of all, you're reborn. You really feel that. Second of all, you feel like, okay, there, I survived this. There is a purpose to why I survived. You know, there is the purpose to fill. And so um, a month later, it was me and my dad. And we go uh, to the farm. We're standing next to our land in a pickup full of armed men. I, I think there were five people in it. Uh, drives into our farm. They come out of the car. They come to my dad. And they ask him to use our car to take it. And my dad was like, this car is registered under my name. If you do anything with it, it will come to me. It will harm me. I I can't do that. Uh, Immediately, they're like, take his son. I was standing next to him. And um, they took me. They threw me on the back of the pickup. Right. And my dad was begging them by this point. He was like, take my car. 
take everything you want, just leave my son here. And he was begging them, he was crying, and he was a very tough man to cry. Mm-hmm. They threw me on the, in the back of the pickup, and they set off. I was taken under the accusation that I work with the regime, and that my dad supports the regime financially, which was false. I've come to death so close to the point where I became unafraid of it. And so when they put that gun on my head and they said, confess, and we'll let you go and we'll bring your dad and kill him, I took my hand, my right arm, and I put it on the gun, and I was telling the guy, shoot. Now, this is obviously, you shouldn't do that if anyone points a gun at you. But um, I wanted to show them that I'm not afraid. And I wanted to show them that my death would be left as a mark on them to show how those who promised to protect the people killed one of the people. Mm-hmm. And I don't want our, our uh, listeners here to think that I, I was all heroic and I was going through it like uh, Dwayne Johnson going through his movies. <laughs> you know, I, I was really, I was terrified. And how long did they hold you? They held me for 10 days. They oh. held, and they, was it still in the Aleppo area? I didn't know where I was. Mm-hmm. You know, I later discovered that I was in uh, towns surrounding Hama. Um, it was south of Aleppo. They, you know, they told me all sort of things. They told me we're in Lebanon. They told me we're in Iraq. They told me were they trying to recruit you to join them? You know, this is a funny situation. But towards the end, when they let me out, they offered me a job. Uh-huh. They offered me a job. They're like, you have shown more courage with your words and your action than all of us have shown with our weapons. And therefore, we'd like you to join our communication team and you can uh, work with us. And I was like, I'm sorry, I want to go back home. I want to continue my education. So they let you go. They let me go. I got back to Aleppo. Mm -hmm. All our businesses were shut down. We couldn't leave Aleppo. We couldn't leave our neighborhood, really. And my dad was not that kind of person to just sit at home and do nothing. And he's like, I'm going to teach you how to make yogurt and sell yogurt. Uh, This is during 2013. I was making around 100, 150 buckets of yogurt every day and selling them. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, sitting there, stirring two large pots of milk and kind of reflecting on your life really... uh, Uh, allows you to start making decisions and for me that decision was um, I want to continue my education because because I want to you know participate in the future building of my country not that there's anything wrong with making yogurt and selling yogurt I loved it and I love yogurt when I sat there I was like what what am I going to offer in the future if I don't have an education what I wanted to expose myself to is different perspectives different opinions, knowledge, and experiences. I stood in front of the mirror and I looked at myself and I was like, I want to continue my education and I want to leave Aleppo, which I believe is the hardest hardest decision I made. Was there any pressure on you during this time to become a fighter? Was there pressure or expectation that you would either join the, the army of the regime or join the Free Syrian army? Did you feel that? There was no immediate pressure, but I knew that if I stay in the country for another year, until I hit 17, I could be taken for military service. I actually am wanted in Syria 
I have five arrest warrants under my name in Syria for escaping military military service right now. Uh huh. Yes, and so you have that pressure. Right. You have that pressure of the you know you're going to be taken to the military. Right. Was it difficult to to leave Aleppo? It was difficult because of two things. It was difficult because my dad never supported it. He didn't want you to go. He didn't want me to go. Mm-hmm. So I had to lie to my dad and tell him that when one day when I was supposed to be in the shop making and selling yogurt, I was you know with my mom and my sister and my niece on my way to Jordan. Uh huh. And that was itself was a hard decision for me. And the second thing, leaving Aleppo wasn't easy because we had to go through the unofficial borders, and the unofficial borders were controlled. Some of them were by the Free Syrian Army, and others were by Jabhat al-Nusra. And uh, for those who haven't heard of Jabhat al-Nusra before, Jabhat al-Nusra is really the I like to call them the 1.0 version of ISIS. Well, I, and they're considered the Al Qaeda affiliates. Yeah, they're considered the Al Qaeda affiliates, and so they're mad crazy as well. I remember when I was walking uh, through their checkpoint, someone from behind me placed their hand on my shoulder, and I turned around. They're dressed in black from top to bottom, and they're like, "Come with us!" And uh, immediately, before asking about my name, before asking about what I'm doing, they're like, "Chop off his head." I just start throwing words in Arabic. I was because mm-hmm. they thought I'm a like I'm a foreigner because of how I looked, and I'm like, no, 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 no. You know, I'm Syrian. I'm just going to visit family on the other side of your borders. That's it. And then they threw me in a room, and they let me out uh, like a couple of hours later. When they figured out you really were Syrian. Yeah. Right. You're not a threat to them, so they just let you go. They just let me go, and um, on the Turkish borders. You went to Turkey. Yes, to Turkey, and then from Turkey to Jordan. I see. So on the Turkish borders, I wasn't allowed entry at first. Uh, they're like, we can't allow a Canadian citizen to enter our borders unofficially. And I was like, there's no going back. You don't understand. Like, if I go back, I'm dead. And, and so I was like, please go and call the Canadian embassy. And um, they did that, and they allowed me entry. And then from Turkey, my family and I went to Jordan. So you flew to Jordan. Yes, from, we flew from to Jordan. Turkey. I arrived to Jordan, and now my family's there. But my family, we're all starting from the bottom, mm-hmm. and I couldn't be a burden on my family because I can't join a, a public school in Jordan, and um, all the private schools are expensive. Um, they also rejected me. They're like, um, "You're going to be 18 years old by the time you join." Uh, 10th grade, you're going to be crazy, how are we going to manage that? And they didn't offer any financial aid and assistance. So I was like, I'm going to work. I uh, worked with uh, Oasis 500, a tech incubator, as an intern. And then I moved to an e-commerce platform, ShopGo, and I worked with them. So did you have uh, tech skills? Nope. Uh, I barely spoke English as well. So uh, just started learning, started learning coding online. So you you learned online? Yeah. So what's your opinion of e-learning? Do you think that's a good tool for, say, uh, refugees? Would that be, you think it's an answer for refugee education? Yes. And let me tell you why. You know, with e-learning, um, and I don't want our listeners here to understand me the wrong way. I'm a big supporter of in-class learning. However, 
we have to admit that we have a problem where good teachers are not going to places where education is needed, where students are in need of education. And what we have online is a lot of gold material. What we need is a good way of filtering and finding that gold material and giving it to the students, and especially mm -hmm. the young refugees in crisis. When you're a refugee, the first thing that you start thinking about, and especially if you're not living in a refugee camp, is how am I going to support my family? And so here, the price of education becomes expensive. Going to school means one less person is contributing to the family, contributing to the monthly income. A lot of uh, kids don't go to school and, and start working at an early age, regardless of their income. Mm -hmm. First of all, a majority of the refugees do have access to smartphones. And once you start exposing yourself to the material, you can kind of start thinking about, okay, how can I use this material to help myself, help my community, help my family? Mm -hmm. And that's the beauty about e-learning, is that it's there, it's in our phones, we just need to learn how to access it. So in Jordan, you know, uh, after working for uh, several months now, I really wanted to start applying to schools. And uh, eventually what happened is I applied to the school called King's Academy, founded by King Abdullah II, based on his experience at Deerfield Academy. I received the scholarship. Keep in mind that I, I failed the first acceptance test because I spoke no English. They gave me another chance. Uh, they provided me with 50% scholarship, and I crowdfunded the rest. Mm, yeah. Through which platform? GoFundMe. Okay. GoFundMe. I made a video, uh, put it up there, was able to raise around $2,000 the first two days. The goal was uh, $45,000. Mm -hmm. The third day, I received an email from someone who would like to remain anonymous saying, sorry, I would like to provide you with the amount needed. And that person really changed the direction of my life. If it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be here right now. No, you wouldn't. So did you finish at King's Academy? You went through you did three years there yes so and so you got your high school diploma I got my high school diploma and is that where you started your nonprofit I started my nonprofit at King's Academy with two other friends uh, their name is Rami Rustom and Will Close one goes to is a sophomore at MIT and the other is a sophomore at Duke mm -hmm. um, we started Fikra Al-Mashi idea on the go mainly because we were frustrated with how service programs were in our school. What kind of service programs do you mean? Service programs in terms of bringing underprivileged kids into our school, a yes. boarding school, an American installation, a haven, mm -hmm. playing with them for an hour or so and then sending them back. Yeah, I see. Mm -hmm. So here, um, the first thing that we sat and down think of, thought about is we're really harming these students more than we're helping them because we're bringing them to our safe haven, playing them for a while, no impact, no sustainability, no long-term thinking, and we're sending them back. So these students are experiencing a lot of mixed emotions. And so what we set out to do is take the concepts that we're learning in our classroom and uh, kind of simplify them and provide them for uh, urban refugees. And the reason why, you know, I want to keep our listeners' attention here by saying the reason why we decided urban refugees is because a lot of people hear of refugee camps. But in Jordan, according to the UN, 20% of them are living in refugee camps. The 80% is in, in urban areas. Urban refugees. And urban refugees have no access to education, healthcare, or basic life necessities. And they depend mainly 
on private NGOs for these three elements. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to work with urban refugees. And uh, the first idea was to bring a bus, transform it into a mobile classroom, go set up in, in the streets and start working with children. That didn't work because, first of all, streets are very crowded in Jordan. And we're all high school students, none of us can drive, and we don't have enough money to transform a bus into a moving classroom. Right. So we're like, okay, another way we could go around this is partner up with local NGOs who are working with urban refugees, get access to the list of uh, students they work with, mm -hmm. and then bring these students under no selection process for three months programs and apply what Professor Sugata Mitra applies in his soul method, which is the self-organized learning environment. Mm -hmm. And self-organized learning environment is this concept of question-based learning. The teacher would write a question, for example, where is Italy? And the students, every group of students would receive a, a laptop, access to internet, and would start researching. Mm -hmm. Now, we saw that, first of all, there's a gap of English. You know, the students that we're working with don't speak English, been out of school for a multi multiple number of years. So we're like, let's start with introducing the students to the English needed to survive on the Internet. We started giving them basic understanding of Google Translate, Google Research, Wikipedia, when not to use Wikipedia. And, and you started that your first year in high school? My like, first year in high school. And, and it's still going? It's still going to this date. Okay. Yeah, still going to this day. How many students have gone through it? We've worked with uh, over 350 students so far. And the reason, even though we've been there for multiple years now, almost three years, um, three years working, the reason why our numbers are small is because at the end of the day, we were high school students going outside school to these urban areas over the weekend. And so we really only had six hours of work every weekend for three months for the program. And so what Fikra al-Mashi then, what we started, we're like, we need the objectives of what we want to be teaching. And that's when we really set off to have a question-based learning, critical thinking, teamwork, and love of learning. The reason why we thought we need love of learning is basically we need to show these students that education does matter at this time. Do you track the students to see what happens to them after they participate in the program? So right now we're working on exactly that. We're working on creating a platform where not only we track the students that we work with, we're also working on a platform to connect the students we work with. Mm -hmm. We're also working on establishing a center in Jordan where all the students that we've worked with receive free access, free transportation to access this center work on their projects that they want to work with and have access to tools and information and the means to really bring the questions that they see in their communities and start working on and them. And they're all refugees? Yes. Mostly Syrians? Do you have any Iraqi? We, we've worked with Iraqi, Palestinian, mm -hmm. underprivileged Jordanians and Syrian refugees. Mm -hmm. And I really try to have a mixture in every program we have mm -hmm. because a classroom is really where you start building the strong bonds of a society. When you create harmony in a classroom, that, that echoes in the streets, that echoes in the house. And is there a finishing point where a student would finish the course? Yes, so the course is around three months long mm -hmm. with two sessions every week. Towards the end, each group of students select a project that they want to work with. They present it 
And that's really the end, is when the students are capable of standing up there, presenting a project, and really addressing the questions they want to answer. Some of the examples of the students we worked with was a group of 40 girls, ages between uh, 16 and 20 years old. It was a mixture of maybe Syrian, Palestinian, Jordanian, and Iraqi. What do they do with that education? What's their next step? Their next step is really is up to them. How can you take what you just learned, start teaching it to other students that didn't get to the program, and really use it to benefit yourself? Once I had a student who uh, believed of honor killing as the right thing to do. And that person, when he sat down in a group of four and started discussing his opinion, stood up in front of a class of 35 kids and said, I apologize for thinking that this is the right thing because I was wrong. And so here you really see the power of discussion and the power that these students are left with. Is that based in Arabic culture? The idea of discussion? Yeah, talking things out. We have the concept, the shura concept. The shura, exactly. The shura concept, which is... the council. The council. But we, you know, unfortunately, with, our, with the regimes that we've been exposed to and the way they change our lives, this concept is really used anymore. Mm-hmm. It's a really strong and important concept. You know, if you don't have the, the space to discuss and to share opinions, then you're really going to be stuck to regressive uh, opinions and backward ones. So you're giving us a great youth perspective on crisis, your own experience uh, dealing with being arrested, being kidnapped, escaping from the conflict, starting your own NGO that focuses on education for refugees, and then pursuing your own education. Yeah. And then winding up at a university in the United States What's your vision for the future? What do you want to do? And will it continue to involve Syria and, and the Arabic world? Yes. The reason why I want to go back to the Middle East and work there is because I believe I owe something to that region. And I believe uh, someone from there, from that culture, from that history, it is not right of me to come and receive an elite level education and not go back and share it with my community. Mm-hmm. That would be the wrong thing of me to do. Mm-hmm. And that is just simply how I believe. So it. as a young Syrian, when you see the situation in your country, cities destroyed, Aleppo, um, particularly hard hit, mm-hmm. um, the use of chemical weapons on civilians, and that conflict is continuing, what kind of outcome do you see there? How is that conflict going to resolve? First of all, I'm not a political expert. But what I can tell you is, when we see an international community that is sitting, witnessing the death and massacres in the 21st century, where we show off about how amazing our age in comparison to the ages that have come before it, And when no one does anything about it, you really start thinking about, okay, who's going to move? Who's going to move this? And I would like to echo this main, as I'm sitting in the United States, to the United States. We really have to put our political interest on the side when it comes to uh, a situation at this scale. In terms of humanitarian response. In terms of humanitarian response. 
Not a lot of people are saying it, but you can clearly see that Syria is being used as a proxy war between the United States and Russia mm -hmm. and the big powers. Not a lot of people saying it, you know. And now Turkey is in there as and well. And now Turkey is in there. And, you know, when we hear the news about all these movements from Turkey, from the United States, from Russia, we can forget the humanitarian suffering. And we start focusing on the, the political atmosphere. Mm -hmm. But no, we must start First of all, focusing on the humanitarian suffering and then move to the political solu solution. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, without these people, Syria doesn't exist. Syria is not the land. Syria is the people. Without the people, then uh, say goodbye to Syria. And I don't want to be saying goodbye to Syria. Thank you very much for... Uh, sharing your perspective with us and it's clear that you're not saying goodbye to Syria that you're going to continue your work through the organization Fikra al-Mashi that you've set up through the work you're doing to educate um, and help other people who are caught in a refugee situation through the commitment that you have to the region I really appreciate the honest way you've been able to share this perspective with us today. So Thank you so much, Patrick. I want to thank FHI 360. But, you know, before saying goodbye to our listeners here, I really want to leave you all with one message, in that people will never remember you for what you did to yourselves, but will always remember you for what you did to others. Yeah, that's a beautiful thank message. You. Sorry, thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you to our listeners You've just heard an extraordinary conversation with an extraordinary young man. I'd be very interested in having your comments about uh, Sari's reflections on his experience and on what's happening in Syria and the Middle East. You can send your comments on SoundCloud or iTunes and leave us a review. You can listen to previous episodes of A Deeper Look, both from this season and last season. And stay tuned, throughout this year we'll be talking about humanitarian response in emergency situations.